Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats or find us on Facebook as well. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Look on the podcast tab there, find all of our episodes available. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews. Also invite you to check out our Patreon site, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. You can help the show stay ad-free and just support our efforts. Why not? Entry level for supporting and voting on episodes like this one, which was voted on by our members. Uh, Mid-level for early access to new shows and higher audio quality. And then the upper level, our bestest friends, with exclusive content once a month, remastered episodes through the months with uh, new entries, and Spotify playlists, a frequent request from our fans with our end-of-show choices. All that at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Yeah, I'm just sitting around here, bored, damp, beflanneled, um, waiting for things to happen. But, you know, it, it, whether it does or it doesn't, it, it, it's really not that important, and I wouldn't get too excited. Nevertheless, here we are to entertain you. Now, to be fair, you're beflanneled only because it's too in Chicago right now. I mean, that's, that's uh, I'm just, sorry, that's Scott. No fashion I, I go, I go by windchill. It's negative seven, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> Uh, Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. And we welcome back to the program a guest from way back when, uh, a writer at Real Clear Investigations and Real Clear Politics. Find him on Twitter, at Haminator. Mark Hemingway is back on Political Beats. Mark, thanks for joining us. Hey, glad to be back. If you go into our archives, you'll find our episode on The Replacements, a fine early episode in the program's history where Mark was also a guest. He returns today to talk about Nirvana. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But Mark, the floor yours to begin with as we ask you what you're doing over at Real Clear and uh, how you got there. Um, huh. Well, you know, I do a number of things uh, journalism-wise these days. Um, but uh, my the main thing I do is I, I'm a senior writer at Real Clear Investigations. So that allows me to write sort of deeper dive pieces on, you know, various important issues in the news. I mean, I've done pieces on everything from Iran to my last piece was about impeachment in the last year or so. Um, and, you know, I, I do enjoy that because I sort of come out of the magazine world. Um, I was at the Weekly Standard prior to working at Real Clear Investigations, you know, back before the late great Weekly Standard folded. Um, and then I also write for Real Clear Politics. Um where I do a semi-regular column on, you know, just tends to focus on media criticism. And uh, what else? I mean, I write for lots of other places on the regular Washington Examiner, Law and Liberty, um, uh, The Federalist, obviously, where my wife works. Um, and yeah, I just stay pretty busy. And uh, Mark joining us today again to talk about a, a selection that was voted upon by our Patreon members. We said, hey, what do you want to hear next? And uh, there were two artists that were right at the top, and Nirvana was one of them. Uh, it seems like it might be a short discography. I mean, the official releases are few, but there's lots to discuss as we get into 
this band. And Mark, again, we turn the floor back to you. Tell us why you love Nirvana, how you got into them, and why people should care about this music. So I actually grew up in Oregon and Washington uh, State and uh, graduated from high school in 1994. So you can imagine, you know, as much as you, you, if you're old enough to remember what the sort of global impact of grunge was, you know, magnify that by about 10, you know, considering that I was like living at the epicenter, essentially. Uh, not only that, I was in a band in high school at the time. And, you know, I toured around the Pacific Northwest and it was just kind of amazing to feel like, you know, being from, you know, ruralish. Oregon and Washington, you know, to be at sort of the center of the world's artistic universe at the time. I mean, it was a really strange and exciting, you know, thing. I mean, it really, you know, obviously made a huge impact um, on me, you know, and it was, but at the time it was also interesting because it was very sort of, you know, I hate to use the word empowering, but so it springs to mind, you know, the idea that you could, you know, the Generation X thing was very much about sort of DIY and being defined by what you produce and create as opposed to, you know, corporate tastemakers and things like that. And, and for a brief moment, and I stress brief, <laughs> it felt like the good guys were kind of winning, you know, the idea that major music corporations would put out records like Nirvana and Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. And, you know, the rest of the grunge stuff that was happening in Seattle at the time really was like, you know, holy crap, you know, we're breaking through. You know, this is a world where you can get out there and do like really unorthodox stuff and it will be picked up and appreciated, even if it's challenging. For me, Nirvana was a situation where I grew up, I was born in 1980, right? <clears throat> I grew up in the suburbs. Now, if you were born in that era and you were between the ages of 11 to 14 and you lived in the suburbs, Nirvana was as unavoidable as, you know, sunlight or if you come from the maryland dc area the 13 year cicada blooms the 17 year cicada blooms it just like flocked everything it blotted out the sun at that era and of course i have so many so many childhood memories related to nirvana because you know my brother was into them we have we it's funny that it it's very rare that i could say at that early, early time in my life, before I was a music snob and, you know, I was a collector, that I had every single album in their discography. Bleach, Nevermind, Incesticide, In Utero, MTV Unplugged, we had them all, all right? Um, and, of course, things got really bitter and really chippy between, like, the people who were fans of, you know, Nirvana, and they were fans of Pearl Jam, and they all hated one another. In middle school, this is the kind of thing that would start fights, People were sent to the principal's office over this thing. This is not a joke. I mentioned that back in our other Pearl Jam episode back in the day. You know what? This was my personal Omaha Beach, frankly. Um, that's a reference to <laughs> an article that was just kind of went viral today on the 11th of February when we're taping. It was the kind of thing that people had passionate arguments about. And the funny thing about that is that uh, between you know Team Nirvana and Team Pearl Jam, I was on Team Phil Collins at the time. <laughs> Not proud of it. I've mentioned this in the past that like you know I was still listening to like pop and watching you know like you know number one hit videos and all that. Um, but of course you couldn't avoid the influence of Nirvana because you know first of all your brother buys that CD. My brother's a year older than me. You know, 
a year and a half. And so, like, you know, then all of a sudden, bursting out of the speakers in the basement, you're going to hear, and then you end up listening to all of that music. got a little turned off by the ubiquity of Nirvana uh, and also kind of uh, by the um, I think even when I was young even when I was like a 13 or a 14 year old 15 I, I never really understood the sort of universal despair and sadness that attended Kurt Cobain's suicide not like there's you know it's not like you know his suicide isn't a tragedy but it wasn't like the world altering world shaking event for me that it must have been for people a little bit older than me so i knew all of that music i'd had all of it in my collection i'd listened to all of it but it never really made a major dent on me and i set it aside and in fact in later years i've i've also i've kind of enjoyed uh, trolling or uh, <laughs> i suppose the term you know, these days is posting on Twitter about how like, yeah, Nirvana isn't nearly as good as Pearl Jam. Heck, they're not even as good as Soundgarden for that matter. Um, and so coming back to them for this show, I've heard almost all of this music once already, but I hadn't really given it a serious re-listen you know, since, what, 1999? 2000? So it's 20 years now. It's the first time I've really reassessed Nirvana. And I understand what everyone else saw in them and what it was that i was missing at the time because i've had so much time in that mean that span between those years to sort of add extra musical context i now know the meat puppets and i know mud honey and i know husker do and i know all of the great early you know in mid 80s you know punk and you know pop acts that never quite made it like the replacements for that matter that had an influence in some way or another upon what Nirvana was trying to do. I understand the nature of what the Seattle music scene was, or, you know, it's not just Seattle. It's also like Aberdeen for that matter, which <laughs> is like nowheresville, Washington. It's like down on the, the, the Southern Western coast of Washington. Um, I understand all that stuff that I didn't understand before. So the music has so much more context to me now than it ever could have before. I have to say, this is not exactly a hot take, but Nirvana was actually a great band. Uh, oh. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm really blowing minds here, you know, with with my crazy way out there, uh, you know, arguments. Uh, I would say that they are a truly great band, and I understand why people thought Kurt Cobain's death was a tragedy because you can only imagine what could have come later on in this band's career because he didn't seem like he was falling apart musically at the end of his career i mean the, the, their final album i actually think in utero is the weakest of their three albums ironically enough but it's still a great record and you could just see more and more would be coming down the pike had he not committed suicide 
I think the one argument I will make against Nirvana, and it was something that even as a child got to me, but I didn't understand fully what I was reckoning with at the time, is that you don't listen to this band for their lyrics. I think it was why I always slightly preferred Pearl Jam, because whatever you could say about Eddie Vedder's ultra sincerity, which is not very cool, right? But you know, he wrote texts. He wrote actual songs that had meanings. The lyrics were meant to represent certain images and tell a story. There are very few Nirvana songs that actually hang together like that. There are a few, but there aren't a lot. Most of this stuff is sort of like what sounds good coming out of my mouth <laughs> with these guitars hacking away behind me and, you know, Dave Grohl flailing away on the drums. It's it's almost sort of like, you know, intentional gobbledygook. They sound good, you know. You know, an albino, <laughs> uh, a, a mulatto, an albino, a mosquito, my libido. It doesn't mean a thing. It just sounds cool. So I would caution those who maybe are skeptical of Nirvana, or you know, God forbid, if there's someone who's listening to this show who hasn't ever heard them before, um, don't come to the band looking for the music. You listen to this band because of the hooks, and they were one of the hookiest, most magnificently great sort of alt hard rock songwriting groups of their era and that is where their legacy stands and falls and it stands proud to this day i was deep deep into my uh, classic rock phase when nevermind was released and nirvana was breaking big and so my everyday radio listening habits weren't necessarily tied into the local all well i guess what would be called the alternative station back then although there probably wasn't an alternative station because Nirvana hadn't happened yet. It was just, you know, the, the rock station. And so my introduction to Smells Like Teen Spirit and, and a lot of Nirvana came via a friend who, who also was a big music fan but was uh, a little more current with his taste than trying to go back and mine through, uh, you know, uh, Let It Bleed or something like that. And I remember him sharing Nevermind with me. And I liked it, but I, I couldn't say I was jumping up and down about it. I think largely, again, because I, I was just so deep into sort of retracing the steps of rock and roll from years past. I was more of a second wave fan of these bands. And I, I throw Pearl Jam in there, too. And, and Jeff mentioning that, I mean, I yes, I can remember these deep arguments about whether <laughs> you were a Pearl Jam guy or a Nirvana guy. And never the twain shall meet. And I wonder if there were, you know, Rolling Stones, Beatles arguments back in the day, too. But I, I like Versus, and still like Versus, a whole hell of a lot more than I like the first Pearl Jam album. And uh, when it comes to Nirvana, I was not really attracted to them uh, until In Utero came out. And and dug that a bit more than I did, at least on first listen, the Nevermind stuff. Although the Nevermind stuff is so so timeless. 
And going back now, you know, you sort of remember how brief a window these guys had uh, of being what they were. It's, it's essentially two years, two and a half years, um, you know, post Nevermind, which didn't, I mean, it wasn't a blockbuster out of the gates. It was a slow riser for about four, five, six months or so before it blew up. And then what, from the start of 92 until mid-94 or so, that, and that that's it. And the legacy continued with uh, live albums and, and some work done by the band members that were still with us. But that's a very brief time to have the impact that Nirvana had. And something I hope that we can somewhat define over the course of talking about Bleach and Nevermind and In Utero and what they did is is sort of maybe putting a, a fine point on this statement phrase that always surrounds the band, of course, which is, you know, they, they changed rock and roll. They killed Michael Jackson's Dangerous album. They took hair metal off the charts. It's all because of Nirvana. And if, if we can sort of take time, I think, in some of these discussions to sort of say what why that was, what, what made them different, uh, how do they sort of define or help to define the sound that was coming next and the the second, third wave grunge imitators like Bush or, you know, name your favorite mid to late 90s uh, grungy band. I think that's a discussion we'll have throughout the course of this episode in, in, in talking about what made these guys special and why they were the ones to sort of break that door down. to remember that Kurt Cobain was always really, really deeply uncomfortable with this whole, like, oh, you've changed rock and roll forever, you're the voice of a generation kind of crap. He hated it. And in fact, if you go, like, you know, read the the liner notes to Incesticide, this is B-sides in, like, Rarity Outtakes collection that they released, which is really good, we'll be talking about it. He actually points out, it's like, listen, like, I, I just think of us as, like, you know, a cheap trick for the 90s. Like, we're that band that was inspired by all those other bands. <laughs> and it, like, we just like playing this fun music that that reminds us of the music that we listened to when we were young that gave us a feeling of freedom. So like, it's important to remember that Nirvana is the one that broke it big, but they weren't the first, and they weren't the only ones there. You know, like you know, Gish by Smashing Pumpkins. We talked about this on our Smashing Pumpkins episode. That album had come out like you know, I think like half a year before Nevermind did. Same basic style, and of course, it's interesting how Billy Corrigan sort of like weaves his way in and out of. So he ends up on some of these Seattle scene albums, even though he's from Chicago. He ends up doing a lot of like Courtney Love stuff after Kurt's death and all that. And I understand why now because I go back and I listen to the stuff and I find so many similarities between the two bands and the two acts even though they're obviously very different in other ways um but you, you know it, it's it's just something to keep in mind that that Cobain never wanted this sort of you know 
he was never a megalomaniac. He didn't. He he wasn't like Billy Corgan, frankly. <laughs> he was. He was. He wasn't like a little like you know mini tyrant. Uh, although they were, you know, Billy was huge, and and Kurt was a very short dude. I think you know beyond that, I, they, they they had similar approaches in in basically they wanted to just recreate the sounds that they had heard as kids growing up in the early to mid eighties, you know, and then especially in the later eighties with the pixies coming up big, they thought, well, I can do that too. And of course they, they did. So you both said interesting things um, from my perspective. Like one is, you know, Jeff saying that he had to sort of full understand the full context of Nirvana and, you know, and then that helped him really appreciate the band uh, later on. Um, obviously, being a little older than both of you and from the Pacific Northwest at that time or whatever, it was, you know, I was kind of like, you know, bathed in all of that context, right? I got it immediately. I mean, of course, it helped at the time that, you know, both Seattle and Portland had actually quite, you know, obviously very robust local music scenes that had like, you know, a bunch of fantastic local bands, a number of which never even made it out um, of, of this, you know, scene at the time, but, you know, we're still beloved. It had this incredibly strong, you know, local music culture. There was this, um, you know, publication called The Rocket that was like an alt weekly that was circulated all over the Pacific Northwest. And like you pick up a copy at every, you know, record store and it was like weekly or, or bi-monthly, I forget. Um, you know, that, that like people were like rooting for all of the like the local music scenes and it was... It you know part of my thrill and fascination with Nirvana was you know I've been listening to them since you know at least Bleach, hmm. um, so it was you know kind of you know fun to like you know watch the rise as it were, um, even though you're right it did make um, you know Cobain deeply uncomfortable to like you know sort of attain that level. Um, as for what um, you both said to some extent about like the divides in music at the time, um, that's a really interesting and like fascinating topic to kind of explore you know as jeff points out you had on one hand you had this sort of like pop you know phil collins you know era type thing you know the, the pop music scene that was still very robust you know whether it was whitney houston or phil collins or whatever it was at the time and then you know on the other side of that you know what you were going to listen to on the radio at the time was the whole classic rock thing and Nirvana is interesting because they somehow bridged all of those divides in a lot of different ways. And I, this was, and I think that was the source of what made Cobain very uncomfortable. Like, you know, you, you mentioned bands like Smashing Pumpkins and Pearl Jam, but those bands very much came out of a much more sort of classic rock and in the case of Pearl Jam, even like slightly hair metal tradition um, in a way that Nirvana did. I mean, Nirvana would, their idols were all, you know, at least locally were bands like the Melvins, you know, more broadly bands like the proto indie bands, like the meat puppets and, you know, Minutemen and, and, uh, you know, a lot of those punk rockers from the eighties. And that was a very different musical heritage and culture than the more poppy and the more classic rock stuff. And somehow Nirvana uh, managed to, you know, bridge all of those divides. I mean, it had a lot to do with the slick production of Nevermind, I think. But it will, what really, you know, struck me in high school was, you know, you saw this divide among cliques, like in high school. And it was shocking to me after years of listening to The Cure and the Pixies and R.E.M. and all this stuff, that all of a sudden I turned around and all of the football players that were into Van Halen and ACDC were all of a sudden listening to Nirvana. And there was a bit of resentment, like, hey, that's my music, not yours. You're not allowed to have it because, you know, you are all of a different culture that is doesn't, you know, appreciate what this is about. 
Yeah, now you understand exactly how I feel when uh, Radiohead suddenly became huge after OK Computer, and I was just, you know, as, as only a teenager can be, I was livid. I was like, you sons of bitches, that was my band. You guys dismissed them. How dare you make them big? I don't want to hear, like, you know, the jock listening to Karma Police and, like, bobbing his head along. Ah! It's, it, again, these are the sorts of things, that, that feeling of your specific personal ownership over music is only something you have when you're a teenager. Yeah, um, th that's true. But but you know what happened with Nirvana was is, was and on that level, I just it was like times ten compared to say what happened to Radiohead. I mean, yeah. fact, Radiohead, the Radiohead's first record got a lot of Nirvana comparisons just on the dynamics, you know, alone, the sort of loud, quiet thing, right? Um, and you know, their Radiohead's first album got noticed, and their second one got you know significant radio play, and so it was possible to exist at that sort of like mid level. Um, and be that kind of band, you know, by the time Radiohead rolled around and what Pablo Honey came out in 94, was that right? 92. Um, 92, okay. So it was a little earlier than I thought. Um, but um, so it was possible to exist at that level as a mid-level band playing that kind of music where prior to Nirvana, it just wasn't. Like you were kind of underground um, or you weren't. not be underground you had to be in sort of a specific stylistic format you had to be classic rock hair metal or some kind of like you know overt pop essentially i mean i i think that's right i also think it's funny because both radiohead and nirvana both cited as their specific influence for their earliest albums it was the pixies and of course we've done our pixies episode already uh pixies of course kind of the uh the uh the prophet without honor uh they had uh you know, done all this stuff starting back in 1987 with Come On Pilgrim and then Surferosa and then Doolittle. And they'd always had sort of like a lot of critical, you know, buzz, but no real commercial success. And by the time Nirvana finally started, you know, getting big in 1991, 92, Pixies are already spent force. But you hear, just as you hear on Creep, you know, quiet, loud, quiet, that, that, that whole like style of, you know, keeping a listener's attention by, 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 you know, bringing it back, you know, and, and then coming forward with just incredible violence. That was the Pixies, you know, basic aesthetic. And uh, so many other bands were influenced by it. I just want to say, you know, one thing, the biography of these bands, I always find it to be, in most cases, the least interesting aspect of it. But just to set the scene briefly, who are these guys, right? Um, it's not who you think necessarily at the beginning because everybody thinks of Nirvana as, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain, uh, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl. But 
Dave Grohl did not come in until their second album. Uh, originally, it was the two high school buddies. It was Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic. They were in Aberdeen, Washington, which is, as I emphasized at the beginning of the show, is emphatically not Seattle. It is, like I guess, closer to the capital, Olympia. It's like just a kind of a, a backwater. There's like I think there's like you know thirty five thousand people live in the town. It's not a big city by any means. Um, and of course, you know, Cobain had a pretty unhappy family life, uh, and you know he knew Novoselic uh, from high school. They said, hey, let's start a band together. Eventually, you know, Chris said, okay, why not? Then they start doing demos, and this is like in say like eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven. Uh, by the time. Uh, 1988 rolls around, they have found themselves a drummer. And that drummer's name is a guy that, if unless you're a serious Nirvana fan, you probably haven't heard of. His name is Chad Channing. I almost want to do one of those memes where they have, like, you know, the Virgin Grohl versus the Chad Channing. Except this time, the Chad loses. Uh, because although he plays on their first album, and he does a creditable job, in my opinion, uh, Cobain eventually got a little fed up with him and his inability to sort of you know you know keep on the ball especially during live performances and fired him and then that's when they go find dave grohl uh, later but uh, that leaves us with nirvana's first album their early era so this is sort of 1989 through 1990 era which i consider to be highly underrated and this is the stuff that when we i first got it because everybody bought nevermind in 1992 right after it blew up every kid bought that album and then they're like i want more nirvana i want more nirvana and they're like oh they have an earlier album so you went and you bought bleach and if you were 12 years old and not prepared for that kind of music you were intensely disappointed because it was just so much harder and in, in, in which much rawer edges than what, of course, their big commercial breakthrough was going to be. say coming back to it now now with the experience of what i've already learned about music i think bleach is a hugely underrated album i think it's their second best record um now again the lyrics they don't mean anything but i think like the for example the first five songs on that record which is like blue is it like floyd the barber about a girl uh school which i think is hilarious and love buzz um which is a, a goofy cover uh i think that's as not quite as good, but but it, it is worthy of comparison to the first half of Nevermind with all those hugely famous hit singles. And yes, this is more abrasive. This is more sort of, you know, intentionally arty material. Uh, but I have to say, God, this holds up. There are massive hooks on a song like Floyd the Barber. There are abrasive, edgy hooks, but the hooks are there. The hooks are there on almost all of these songs. Maybe not Mr. Mustache. But every other one of these songs has something to it that I will recommend to you.
Yeah, I don't think that's a particularly controversial opinion among Nirvana fans, right? Right. That that Bleach is their second best record, um, but but you know, as you you know note, so many you know even so many people have only heard their two big major label records, and maybe Incesticide, which was you know put out on Geffen. Um, you know, in between the two records, although Geffen didn't do much to promote that record. They just kind of like threw it out there. And that was partly a result of the Nevermind actually turned out to be such a big record. Like they had planned that B-Sides collection of, you know, a lot of Bleach era stuff, right? Um, just to sort of keep the momentum going, but the momentum was still going. I and mean, the album was still cranking out singles. And so they had this like record in the hopper that they'd planned to release, you know, to buy the band some time to put out a second record. And the album was still going, but it was it's a it's it's a great record, and in the sense that I, it does capture a lot of the things that were great about Bleach. Um, in fact, Adventure, there's probably a lot of people that have heard Incesticide that haven't heard Bleach. Um, but you know, who knows? Uh, they should hear. Like, I mean, a song like Blue that is a great opening salvo to mm-hmm. Nirvana's career. I think it's everything that was uh, what Nirvana was about. You don't need to worry about the lyrics. Those hooks are going to get underneath your skin. To some extent, it, you know, the band was a lot less serious then. Um, you know, I know your, your point about the lyrics or whatever, but but there was a certain seriousness that underpinned a lot of, you know, in darkness even that underpinned a lot was happening on Nevermind. You know, you have, you know, Bleach, just there's a there's a much more of a sense of sort of like fun and whimsy or whatever and being young on that record. And, you know, that sort of levity given the otherwise, you know, crushing guitars and, you know, um, you know, and, you know, incredible dynamics, I think, does a lot for the band and what they're trying to do. And if you appreciate that in context, you know, I think it helps you appreciate Nevermind more. Scott? This Bleach record, uh, as Jeff mentioned, sort of provides a template, right? Because there are, there are really are these, these hooks all over the place on a number of songs that provide entry points for the listener. Um, and that said, I think Jeff mentioned Blue, which is a great song. But I, I, I think there it's, it's already immediate what the strengths are, right? Nova Selleck's bass is anchoring that song, rumbling very low. I think he called it Doom Pop because he had it tuned down another uh, level. Kurt Cobain's voice is strong. He's a, he's a good guitar player. And I would disagree. I think Channing is, like, serviceable. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, there's a reason he got fired. Right. right. I, 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 you know, I, I think he's the weakest part of of Blue. Right. Uh, certainly, uh, there are a few songs on here, like Floyd the Barber, that Jeff mentioned, where there there are uh, like the Melvin's drummer sits in and plays, and and uh, those songs are pretty apparent that it's someone who's not Chad Channing playing uh, on those tracks. 
Um, you, you find About a Girl on Bleach, which is a song that was the first track on the Unplugged album, which would be a few years from now. And that might be the you know the most melodic moment uh, on the album. It's got a, a peppier tempo than what w- what they would play later in the unplugged episode, but um, uh, kind of a simple song. It's just mostly a two chord groove, but really powerful. And uh, you know, as, as Jeff mentioned, sometimes the lyrics don't mean much, but when you have a song like about a girl and it's sort of about um, sort of an ideal romance versus a a, a, a reality romance. And the lyrics are structured in a way to, you know, sort of replicate the marriage vows, all these I do statements. I think we can take something from that. I think there's a, there's a little bit of you know, work construction uh, that was put in. still some places in which I think Kurt Cobain is figuring out the best way to use his voice. Uh, that, that Love Buzz track that Jeff mentioned is a lot of fun, but I, I think it's not quite as Not the as best it, vocal. Right, it's not the best <laughs> vocal, and there are a few places here where I think he's trying to figure out uh, how, how to use his voice. It, it's, right. a, it's a first album. They're still, they're still figuring those things out. Um, something like Scoff, uh, later in the album, just lifts the drums from, you know, my Sharona from the knack. And even more than the drums, I think there are a lot of similarities between that song and Scoff. There, there were varied influences on, on Kurt Cobain, including some in places you would not expect to find them, like the knack. Okay, uh, you, you, by the way, this gets into a point that Cobain himself made, and I think is really important to sort of understanding the evolution of Nirvana. Right, yeah. That, that was totally lifted from the knack. And guess what? Kirk Bay liked the knack, yeah. which is not something you're supposed to admit because it's not cool, right? You know, good pop rock from the late seventies and, and eighties. He didn't. It didn't have to be like you know, you know, like you know, esoteric, uh, yeah. like independent stuff. It's, and, it's worth mentioning that Love Buzz was a cover, <laughs> right? <laughs> from exactly a, from, from an old Dutch rock band. 
<laughs> right. And and the thing about, you know, um, Bleach, I think, you know, Cobain said is like, hey, I felt like we were kind of being forced into a style because right. it was released on Sub Pop, which is, you know, the big, the famous sort of now kind of like legendary. It's sort of like the way we think of Twin Tone Records or something like that in Minneapolis. Well, this is a Seattle's independent record label. Uh, and uh, they, you know, had a certain, <laughs> we wouldn't call it a house style. It's not like Motown, but there were certain sonic expectations for bands that were going to be releasing music on sub pop. And Cobain says, like, I felt like, you know, he, he was actually quite the eclecticist. He had a lot of really wonky pop, you know, you know, you know, you know, impulses. He loved like sappy pop music. He loved like, you know, you know, goofy, fun, good times music. But he felt like I, I have to like kind of put myself into this mode. And so he sort of sharpened up and, and uh, you know, edited and sanded down the songs that he was writing and the hooks that he was writing to sort of get a tone and get an approach that would feel at home on a Seattle rock independent record label. But the funny thing is, is that him being forced to do that and that's sort of a, what would you call it? Sort of like it's a discipline. It's it's a, it's a, it's a, an artistic discipline. Uh, it, it's what creates Nirvana because that's something that whether he liked having to do it or not is is kind of what would carry through for the rest of their career. Because you see that same approach, you know, even though it's amped up to eleven on Nevermind with all the very poppy, you know, you know, very you know, immediate sonic production, or even on In Utero, his love of mixing like you know, clever, fun pop hooks. Uh, and memorable ones with like angry, aggressive, you know, guitars and drums is something that whether he wanted to do it or not uh, is would end up becoming the foundation of Nirvana. And by the way, I don't think all the lyrics on this album are meaningless. And I think one of them that relates exactly to what I was just saying is is, is a great song called School, which is hilarious. It, it, it's it's, you know, you know, won't you believe it? It's just my luck. It's just my luck. What is it he he's talking about? It's just his luck. It's just his luck to be being sent back to school. You're in high school again. You're in high school again. There's no recess, no recess. And what is he talking about? He's talking about how it felt to have to sort of force himself as a square peg into the round hole of the sub pop indie style. Now we have to like, keep up with the scene and we have to like play to expectations. Um, you know, obviously this is not something Nirvana would ever be accused of doing much of again in their career. And yet who am I to say that it was a bad thing for the band? As I said, sometimes a discipline is a good thing for a songwriter. And I have to say, that's one of the reasons I like bleach so much. I just think that it, it's, it's obviously a prototype for the kind of music they would be making for the rest of their career. But to me, this is the kind of music that I, I like, I like angular, weird stuff that has, you know, catchy pop hooks, uh, but is not necessarily going to make the top 40 or maybe even the top 200 at any given time.
Yeah, that's interesting you talk about the pop hooks because, I mean, I think, you know, again, it was evident from the band's style from the beginning. In many ways, it was kind of a more natural home for them uh, than, you know, being the big, loud Seattle band. I mean, if you're sitting down with an acoustic guitar and you're playing Nirvana songs or whatever, the clarity of the songwriting and, and the, the sort of skill involved or whatever immediately comes through. Um so I, I'm a little bit of a hack musician, as I previously mentioned myself. I used to play in bands, stuff like that. I still play guitar. And, like, that pop sense is really worth kind of, like, delving into. Like, for instance, the the riff on Smells it's Like Teen Spirit is, like, from a music theory perspective, like, genius. Basically, the riff is an F chord to an A sharp chord to a uh, G sharp chord to a, a C sharp chord. And... If you know anything about the chordal relationships or whatever, basically, it's 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 basically like he shoehorned two different progressions together. Like right. where you have it, you have the one in four of two different chord progressions, except for the fact that the final chord is also the fifth chord that would resolve the first chord progression. I don't know if like that makes sense for those of you who would want to sit down <laughs> with like the fret markers on a guitar that know enough to what I'm talking about. But the point is, is that Cobain basically took your standard one, four, five pop progression, which is heard in everything from, you know, Louie Louie to um, um, Here I Go Again by Whitesnake would be another example, I guess. <laughs> it is like the background, like it is like the absolute quintessential, you know, Chuck Berry, one, four, five chord progression that defines rock and roll. And Cobain took that and just threw in like a completely off kilter twist to it. But it's still kind of a one four five progression resolving itself with an extraneous chord thrown in that just makes your throws your entire brain for a loop by introducing like a second chord progression that doesn't quite resolve. And it's just genius and it's very poppy and intent. Um, and then like when you think about it from like a listener's perspective, um, he does this on a couple of songs in Nevermind where like the solo to Smells Like Teen Spirit is just the melody line mm -hmm. that he sings. And I know it's not like a, a great feat of musicianship to, you know, write a melody, to write a guitar solo that's simply the melody line for the vocal. But it shows that Cobain had a particular ear that went well beyond both the patience and skill of most bands that were just at that time bashing loud chords into, you know, loud amplifiers, um, you know, to play punk rock. Like he he had an ear that was capable of, you know, picking out an actual melody that he had written and transposing that to the guitar. Like that was an intuitive thing that he could do. And it really, really shows like he had a fluidity and a vision at all times for what he was doing when he sat down to write with a guitar. And uh, that's why Nirvana was huge. And bands like the Melvins, who I love them, you know, were not.
discipline. He had the discipline that none of these other groups really did. I always seem to, I sort of feel like the Meat Puppets should have been able to make it. I love that second album of theirs. And of course, Nirvana did too, as we'll see coming up. Uh, but like, yeah, Cobain just had, uh, I guess, a appearance. He was never, a, he's not a formally trained musician. He, he just, as he said, it's like, I just sit down with a guitar and I hack it out. So he had a purely untutored genius for finding those innovative ways to sort of rewrite the standard chord changes now scott do you have any final thoughts on bleach or do we want to move on to nirvana upending the entire universe uh we probably can move on to uh to nevermind yes well they released a single in between bleach and nevermind but i don't know if we'll discuss it here or we can discuss it later on incest side it's a song called sliver and i think it's just like stupid pop fun it's about as close as i think nirvana ever got to like like a really fun goofy pop song even though it's still nirvana so it's you know it's got a heavy approach to it um it's a great tune uh thankfully though it's not an obscurity you can find it on the on the b-sides and the outtakes record so i guess really then what matters is that by the way there's a lot of time between these records, which is interesting for a band like this. Bleach was recorded, I think, mostly in like 88. Didn't come out until mid-1989. Uh, uh, never mind. I think the story of this is that they, they wanted to figure out who to do their next album with. And then they went to uh, Butch Vig, who is a great producer. He's from uh, Madison, Wisconsin. You know, he's a cheesehead. Isn't that nice? Um and so they're all there drinking spotted cows and recording the first version of, of Nevermind, these original songs and demos. Uh, they're not really too happy with it. They're still on Sub Pop. Uh, and they decide that, no, we're not going to go with this. In fact, we're going to use this as a demo reel to try to get a major <laughs> label deal. Right? And so they, they go hawk their wares, and they get Geffen Records to sign them. David Geffen, savior and enemy to so many musicians throughout the years. Uh, and, but they insist, instead of like you know going to get some celebrity producer, they, they, they want to have Butch Fig do their real album with them. So they go back. In fact, they actually they don't go back to Madison. I think they record it in California somewhere or something like that. And they record like a small album of little repute uh, called Nevermind that, as we have already said a couple of times on the beginning of this show, basically – you know, was an, an 8.9 on the Richter scale in terms of the way it seismically altered the terrain of popular music. Who wants to go first offering their thoughts on this album? My God, I despair of finding something new to say about it. I'm so happy because today from my friends are in my head. I'm so ugly. That's okay because so are you. Every day for all I care And I'm not scared Light my candles In our days Cause I found God Yeah, I just wanted to add that the, 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 so the, the, their jump to the major label was kind of an interesting thing uh, in the sense that one, I don't think that that was expected of them in a lot of ways. Um, you know, they, they, they 
they met with the, the person responsible for help. Well, there were two people helping responsible for them sort of jumping to a major label. One is Sonic Youth, who had, they had toured with. And, uh, you know, Sonic Youth had really taken a shine to them and like sort of seen what they were about. Um, you know, weirdly, even though Sonic Youth are, are in a similar vein, they're, they're very different in a lot of ways. I mean, Sonic Youth are like, they're like literally baby boomers. They're so much older. Um, and they... I think got the pop craft aspect of what Nirvana were doing, you know, in terms of like their relationship with like obscure, you know, Dutch pop and other things like that in ways that I don't think the contemporaries did. And they pushed hard to get Geffen to sign them. And the other was the business manager for Soundgarden and Allison Chains that they, they somehow knew was a huge help with them when they, once they decided that they wanted to go on uh, the major label route. But the other thing though, is this, you got to remember, like it still was kind of not cool to be on a major label. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly of a band, you know, of making the kind of music that they did. So, I mean, that suggested that they, you know, as much as Cobain, you know, hated the limelight and all that other stuff, that they were, you know, very ambitious. You know, they, they did, they really did want to go out there and write the songs that were going to, you know, change the world on some level. And, and they had some idea of what that was going to entail. Like, like you mentioned, yeah, they went to LA somewhere and recorded their, their record, but they didn't just go to anywhere. I mean, they went to Sound City, which was like, one of these studios in LA where like Tom Petty and Rick Springfield and all these other people were recording their records and like they did it up in like the whole sort of proper music industry fashion. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they had some regrets about that allegedly, you know, because Butch Vig, who's an amazing producer, as you met, as you've mentioned, you know, he's also in garbage, um, and, you know, did, you know, the first couple of smashing pumpkins records and, and other things. I mean, he's a legendary producer at this point in time. Um, they liked working with Butch Vig and, and Vig, you know, came out of the sort of the alternative indie world. But the major label Geffen wasn't happy with the mix that Vix had done, Vig had done. So they called in Andy Wallace, who is like the quintessential like hard rock guitar. Um, you know, didn't he? Guitar. Didn't he do? He was the Slayer's producer or something he was like Slayer's that. Slayer's producer. Um, yeah. I mean, he produ- he he mixed. He's famous as a mixer. Like for instance, everything he does sounds fantastic. Like. I hate Lincoln Park, for instance. I loathe them with the fire of a thousand suns. But those records sound really good, right? Um, because Andy Wallace mixed them. Um, his his one Andy Wallace is an interesting guy. His one big production credit was he's the producer of Jeff Buckley's Grace record, which is kind of plays against type for him because he's known for being a loud rock guy. But he was he's the guy. Wow, that, like, that's a factoid I just learned. <laughs> I, yeah. I would never in a million years would I thought that he'd do that. But but so Vig produced what was he got great performances out of the band. And again, it really helped that, you know, Grohl is like maybe the greatest, you know, top five rock drummers in history. I mean, the guy is a human metronome with tons of energy and just a a great, great rock drummer. Um, And so things were like clicking for them in the studio. But Vig's ultimate Vig's production of Nirvana, like viewed them as, you know, another like fun, idiosyncratic alternative band. And the studio didn't like his mix. And you can go online, you go to YouTube, and you can hear that, like, there's, like, videos where they play, like, the original Vig mix versus the Andy Wallace mix. And, like, Andy Wallace came in and gave that record this just incredibly slick, like, rock and roll sheen that made it sound like a slick rock record as opposed to a, you know, obscure punk band or whatever from the Pacific Northwest. And I think that had a lot to do with their success. Supposedly Nirvana was very... On the boxed set, on the boxed set, they have uh, 
the Butch Vig mix of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. And the contrast between that and the one that's on Nevermind is just so obvious. Like the thing, what, what's the thing that you remember about the first time you heard Smells Like Teen Spirit? You know, it's just it's the opening riff, but it's not just it's the way Grohl's drums come in. Ba-da-da, 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 ba-da-da. It's just cannonball shots in your ears. It's the most heavy, massive sound you've ever heard. And uh, th- you don't get that on the original one at all. exactly right and then that was all andy wallace i'm sorry i'm an unabashed andy wallace fan like i kind of love that slick rock sound you know even when it's in the service of you know songs and bands i hate (laughs) but you're you're absolutely right that was the other thing is that that can't be understated here was the actual like literal sonic impact of the recording of smells like teen spirit like the first time you heard that song somehow there's just like actual audio magic I mean, you're right. The dynamics between that weird, you know, off-kilter opening guitar riff and Grohl coming in on those drums is so mind-blowingly heavy. Like, to this day, I don't think there are, like, there have been any recordings that I've heard since. That, you know, maybe it's because of the place and time or whatever. I'm imagining things. But I think in some objective fashion as a musician, I can step back and say, I have never heard dynamics like that captured on you know two inch magnetic tape or whatever it was at the time i mean it's just phenomenal sounding it is and that is a song i I don't know how long we can spend on it because it is so ingrained in our consciousness it's like satisfaction for the next generation the 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 opening riff of satisfaction the opening riff that smells like teen spirit the way girls drums kick in it's something that is so definitive one thing I, I have to tell you, I went back to listen to the album, and I, I have the track list in front of me. And Smell Like Teen Spirit is five is more than five minutes long. Like I would never, I, I don't know. It seems like a three and a half minute pop song. It seems like a three and a half minute rock song, and it's five oh two. Um, it's longer than I thought it was. I don't know what that means. Um, I guess it was efficient and effective if I didn't think it was quite five minutes in length, but it is. Um, Smells Like Teen Spirit is great, but you know the, the song that actually really hooked me is In Bloom.
very much the same reason. Grohl's drums are gigantic. And it's a huge upgrade from Chad Channing on, on Bleach. Uh, you know, when you add one of the best rock drummers of all time, it will be an upgrade. And, and Grohl just punches through so many tracks on Nevermind. He is such a key reason why it shines. And the Wallace mix helps, of course. But, you know, you think of In Bloom, and I, I mean, I just hear those massive Grohl fills that, uh, you know, the, the drum roll as they sprint up to the chorus in, in that song. Um, that, that, that's almost a very Grohl, you know, Novoselic sort of song, the dynamic between the drums and the bass line in, uh, in, in Bloom. There are some real pop smarts on that track. And, and that's something, you know, listen, again, listening the whole way through a few times for the episode, when you get to, to songs, and I know Jeff will have some things to say about uh, on a plane or drain you on that second half, even lounge act. This is such a hooky pop rock album. It, it, okay, it's grunge. I, I, I guess I understand the labeling of that and how it became what it what it would become. And maybe it, it helps that we have now thirty years of context to put to it. But something about Nevermind is just so poppy. It is it is it is meant to grab the listener and not let go. And it takes you on a ride from the, you know, from the yeah, yeah, yeah chorus of lithium. Uh, you know, again, I think Drain You is one of the best songs on this record. You know, uh, Cobain's vocals are, are sort of stacked three deep at times. It's just a great, great, sweet pop rock song. And that's what Andy Wallace did to this record to, to make it more palatable to the ear. album went went uh, went crazy it sold like crazy but there are just huge hooks there are big melodic shifts you you have that soft loud dynamic that the band is well known for and essentially every song on this record can grab you in a number of different ways and that's what makes it successful uh, that's what makes it such a, a smash hit and such a big part of rock and roll history yeah, it was kind of scuzzy and punky and and dirty sounding, but it was really shined to a point where it was more about the, the, the song craft and creating these songs that would be stuck in your head, which is something as old as rock and roll. 
I wish everybody could have the same experience with Nevermind that I did. And my and my experience with it is purely by accident and, and largely the product of my own pig-headed stubbornness. Uh, prior to, to booking the show, um, and we talked about doing Nirvana for, uh, Jesus, years now, I think. It's one of those ones that's been on the table as an option. I The last time I'd listened to Nevermind was 25 years years ago something like that it must have been like yeah 97 96 something high school in other words right um and i figured i didn't need to listen to it anymore because i had all those songs memorized right because all those hooks are just lodged in your brain but going back just recently and listening to it again was literally a disorienting experience to go back and listen to the album and to realize that, first of all, you've known every one of these songs by heart since you were like, yeah, 12 years old. Uh, but then to realize that every single one of them has a, an enormous, incredibly compelling and memorable hook. And the reason you know that is that you're like, oh, yeah, damn, I remember that. And then all of a sudden you walk around the rest of the day and you're humming them to yourselves as you're strolling your kid through the snow. You're like, if you can, if you need, I don't even care. We don't have to breed, which is a strange thing to say when you're strolling your kid around. Shazam! Like, you know, this is a classic example of don't worry about the lyrics to a Nirvana song. We, we, we can buy a house. We can build a tree. Uh, I don't even care. We don't have to breed Shazam. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's about that guitar riff. That da -da 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 speed rock stuff. Every single song on this record, literally every single song from Smells Like Teen Spirit all the way to Something in the Way is Great. There are there there are no weak songs. I think the, the weakest moment this, uh, on this album is Chris Novoselic squawkily and off key singing uh, <laughs> Chet Powers' "Let's Get Together" at the beginning of Territorial Pissings. Smile on your brother, everybody get together. I love that part. I love it too. And of course, then and, and this is a thing that coming back to it, uh, you know, my head explode. Where I realized that Territorial Pissings, when I heard that song when I was, you know, at twelve. I didn't understand the context for it, but listening to it now, it's so clearly a Husker Du song. It's Bob Mould. I, I talked in our Husker Du episode that you never heard a guitar sound quite like Bob Mould's on like Zen Arcade, New Day Rising. And then all of a sudden it went back to Territorial Pissings. I was like, there it is. There's that sound, that shred, and that speed. It's, it's clearly a like mid, like 84, 85 era Husker Du kind of a tribute.
I'm just so uh, amused by how when I went back to hear this album for the second time, or not the second time, but you know, the first time rather in like you know a quarter century for me, more or less, I I I don't I give up. I'm no longer going to try to resist it. I'm no longer going to try to complain about it. I'm no longer going to try to be a snob. I don't even mind the production. Nirvana apparently didn't want to do another Nevermind for their follow-up to this album, so they, they intentionally went with Steve Albini for In Utero. But I love this sound. You know, and I also it's probably got obnoxious for them because every other band tried to imitate this sound. So you got, you know, like, you know, all these these grunge imitators doing like the same kind of like massive drums, overheated guitars, you know, you know, ultra compression kind of a thing. But, you know, when you have it moored to songs as good as Come As You Are or Lithium or Stay Away, or you know, Cobain is just shrieking his voice out you know on stay away i don't mind i think it's a beautiful album with not a single happy or upbeat song it's all ominous dark but inevitably memorable pop grooves um i guess you know scott did mention this the one thing i'll say is that yeah on a plane might be my favorite song on the record um which is not to like down on you know breed or lithium <laughs> or poly or in bloom or anything like that, uh, but I like on a plane because that is that might as well be a John Lennon you know nineteen sixty eight Beatles song that that to me feels like it could be happiness as a warm gun basically it has that same sort of a, a, a harmonic and melodic approach and a vibe to it and I even love those little mm-mm backing vocals by the end. Uh, by the end, but I think it, I think it's Grohl who's singing them. Uh, but the way that the song fades out and that the, the the backing vocals still keep carrying on—that's such a Beatle pop moment. That is not a like a punk or uh, an alt or a hardcore moment. That is straight up tribute to to pop sensibilities and pop stylistics. And uh, yeah, it's all over this album. No, it's I regret ever having, you know, pushed Nevermind away uh, in my life, and I'm glad that it's back in it. Um, I, I just I want to make a couple of observations here. Like, one is we've talked a lot about like Cobain's songwriting, and yes, I mean, well, a huge part of Nirvana's success is that he was an incredibly talented, you know, guy who wrote very durable songs. But when I say durable, what I mean by that is like they were so melodically well composed that allowed for. Um, what's so great about Nevermind, which is to say that, you know, there's so many hooks that are sort of packed into this. Like you can take each drum part and each bass line, you know, separate from the song and they are, you know, memorable, catchy, you know, phrases on their own. And then they, 
they come together in the service of a, of a much larger thing. And that is what really makes great albums that you can sort of pick them apart on that musical level where like everything is a hook that comes together in the service of a larger song. And I think Nirvana does that in spades here. I mean, it really does help that, you know, I mean, and, you know, I, I don't think I'm saying anything crazy here, but like far and away, the worst musician in the band here is Kurt Cobain. It's not to say he's a, he's a bad guitar player can't, pull off what he's trying to do he, he certainly does but i mean dave Grohl is a phenomenal drummer and kirk chris Novoselic's melodic sense you know just to have come up with these you know straight ahead bouncy bass lines that like perfectly serve each song you can't say enough good things about the sidemen here and you know unfortunately nirvana in a lot of ways has become the kurt cobain show uh secondarily to what um uh you were saying about how you know this is a, you know a lot of these songs are you know sort of like negative and I totally get that. But what's interesting about this record, and I also think speaks to its success, is that they um, it, it, it exists in this nether world of this like strange space where, yeah, there's a lot of like negative and dark songs that all somehow involve catharsis. So mm-hmm. you're listening to a lot of like you know angry songs that somehow make you feel better when you're done listening to them because it's cathartic. It's not like a downer. It's not like negative in like, you know, of some kind of like weird heavy metal sense that's meant to be crushing it. You it, it's it's absolutely cathartic. Yeah, I mean, I think of a song like Come As You Are, which, of course, has that that Im- sadly now immortal uh, middle eight where it's like, and I swear that I don't have a gun. And of course, that took on a whole completely unintended meaning later on after Kirk Cobain committed suicide. But, you know, that whole melodic progression there it's it's all dark and murky and mysterious and unfortunately i must say it is totally ripped off from a killing joke song which is another thing i would never have realized back in 1992 but i'm a big killing joke fan these days and so i totally understand how they're kind of pissed off about how it cribs the the basic idea of 80s which is one of their great classic mid-80s songs um uh but yeah the thing about it is they still keep the sort of I don't know. The melodic and harmonic sensibility is still positive simply because you can sing all of these songs and the murk never captures it. It never ends up suffocating in its own darkness. Like a song like Lithium, actually, isn't that basically to the extent that any of these songs have any lyrical, like true (laughs) through lines? Isn't that basically about like, you know, I I found religion and that's great for me because that will keep me mentally sane. This is my lithium basically in other words. Uh, And I don't think Cobain meant it in an insulting way. I think he meant it as like, you know, some people really just do need to have God in their lives so that they can keep the darkness away. And that's always the way I've interpreted that song. I have no idea whether I'm wrong about it or not, but yeah, it's like a dark song with that horrible, that angry screaming chorus. Yeah. 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 But I, I don't actually, take like a sad vibe away from it it's i mean if you take some kind of darker depressing lyrics and put them to most instrumental beatles tracks you're not going to come away dark and depressed generally because that that craftsmanship is so strong the melodies are so strong they still are buoyant in a way and i think that's the comparison to make here is you do have in many places, this uh, negativity or, or dourness, world weariness, call it what you will, 
in the lyrics and even in the vocal delivery in places, but the songs are so good. And again, I, I mean, it's hard to sort of draw a straight line, but somewhat Beatles-esque, Jeff mentioned on a plane, um, is very Beatles-esque. There are a number of places where you make that comparison. I think it holds true. And, but those songs I mean, are so Polly, strong. Polly, Polly to me, yeah. the song Polly, the song Polly sounds like uh, I'm So Tired off of the White Album. You know, I think of John Lennon up at 3 a.m., you know, just sort of muttering, like, I'm so tired. And then I think of Polly Wants a Cracker. And, of course, that song has got a really dark backstory behind it. And notably that they had covered in many different ways. I think that one dates back to the Bleach Sessions. They usually, they usually played it like a big up, up-tempo electric song. And then, for whatever reason, I think Cobain just decided to take it up as an acoustic number. But those nagging backing vocals in the chorus, they just, they stick with you. These, these, they're almost it's like he's going to a minor, to a diminished, to a minor. It's such an impressive act of pop songwriting. But you know, not in the way that we think of like Tears for Fears, sowing the seeds of love pop. <laughs> the hooks are there, though. They really are. Isn't me have a seed? Let me clap dirty wings. Let me take a ride, cut yourself. Want some help? Please myself. Got some rope, haven't told. Promise you, haven't true. Let me take a ride, cut yourself. Want some help? So the question is, is does anybody have any final thoughts on Nevermind or do we move on to, wait, we're not going to move on to In Utero. We're going to move on to their B-Size record. <laughs> which is which is kind of an odd move. I, I, I always think about an album like this as the album that a, that a record label puts out when they don't have any confidence that success will be repeated, right? <laughs> I right. just kind of think of... Uh, you know, Ben Folds 5 and Whenever and Ever Amen was their big breakthrough and they sold a bunch of records. But I, I think if you're the record label, you look at Ben Folds 5 and it's a, you know, piano player in a three-piece with no guitar and a light kind so of goes off and says... put out naked baby photos, right. right? I'm not sure they can replicate the success on the pop charts. Let's let's get while well, the getting's good and uh, do naked baby photos and put uh, some unreleased, some B-sides, some live tracks. Seems like... It was clearer that Nirvana was going to have a future of some sort <laughs> after Nevermind. And yet, uh, until we get in utero, we get this incesticide, this, again, collection of... So, Go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say, I don't think the future at the time in that band was as clear as you think it was. <laughs> yes, artistically and commercially, sure. But the question was, is you know, was the band going to self-destruct because of Cobain's heroin addiction and Courtney Love entering the picture and all the other drama that was going on at the time? Didn't and they the have a big thing, royalty dispute as well? I think about like yeah, going back to right like... the time. The band almost broke up basically because um, Cobain basically demanded a much larger share of the royalties because once he realized what publishing was all about, <laughs> he re you know the, the the royalties were being split evenly, and he was like, "Hey, I wrote all the songs and lyrics." And the funny thing is, is that. That uh, Novoselic and uh, um, Grohl were cool with him taking a much larger share of the royalties, but the problem was is that Cobain insisted that he wanted all the royalty money retroactive to the release of Nevermind. Mm -hmm. So he basically wanted to take money away from them that, that had, they had already earned. Um, and so that's what caused a lot of drama in the band. You know, plus 
the drugs, Courtney Love. And then there were a couple of other ancillary factors here with the B-Side collection. One is that um, grunge blew up into a global phenomenon. Like just, it was just truly massive by 1992. I mean, like, you know, fashion designers had, you know, supermodels, you know, walking down the catwalks wearing, you know, flannels and stuff. I and mean, it was, it was so crazy and omnipresent at the time. It was that, truly like, the most unfortunate era for fashion, I think. I love the music, but they, my God, they, I don't know how you could like that. Well, look. again, as someone who grew up in the in the in the uh, Pacific Northwest, <laughs> who understood what was happening there, which is that you live in a damp, rainy climate, and you're fishing old Pendleton, you know, woolen shirts out of the bins at the thrift store because that's what's comfortable to wear in that environment. Right. Never mind that they're produced locally. Um, you know, it was it was a strange thing to be adopted as a uniform when, in fact, it was just what people wore out of custom locally. <laughs> um, but anyway, getting back to this. Um, so so the demand for anything grunge was already huge. So anything they put out was going to be like snatched up. Right. Um, and then on top of that, you have a situation here where um, uh, um, Geffen bought Nirvana out of their contract at Sub Pop. Right. So, you know, a lot of these songs were from the sub pop catalog. And so it was like really mutually beneficial for both record labels to take basically a bunch of pre-existing songs that were out there um, and just throw them out there. And it was just, you know, pure profit from that point in time. They didn't have to deal with any band drama. You know, they didn't have to spend put you didn't have to put them in a recording studio for months at a time in L.A. where it was, you know, they're going to run up a six figure tab. And it was just it was just a no brainer, essentially. Um, but what is true is even though they planned that, like, as I pointed out, the moment earlier, the momentum for Nevermind was like so huge at this point in time that even though it seemed natural to like put out the record, they were kind of shocked. They rolled around late 92 with the album having come out in what was it, September of 91, that the, the record was still like producing new singles you know that were you know getting major radio play so it kind of got lost in the shuffle i mean i think never mind is certified diamond and incesticide mm -hmm. only went gold or something like that but um i mean it did make a big impact i mean every kid i know went out and bought it <clears throat> yeah we had it too and i have to say i i i really like this album a lot this of course it, it, it it's much more similar to bleach than it is to never mind and so it was a bit of a shock when we got it. We didn't know it was like a B-sides album. The same I, we had described the similar phenomenon when we did uh, Smashing Pumpkins with Pisces Iscariot. You know, like, yeah. like hey, well, why why are the Smashing Pumpkins doing a uh, Fleetwood Mac cover? And uh, what I didn't realize is that they, you know, it was a BBC session. And this album also has a bunch of BBC sessions on them, but they're all yeah. great. You know, they're really great. I love the version of. Uh, uh, Polly that they did at the BBC. I think it was back before Grohl even joined the band. And it, you know, it's it's the upweight, the up tempo, electric version. Uh, but the thing ends with this this song called Aneurysm.
which is very close to making my top five at the end of the show. I'm not sure whether I prefer this one or the actual studio version, which can be found on the boxed set. Uh, but just like another one of these completely thrown away, never on an album, not even officially released as a B-side to the best of my knowledge, songs. Uh, this record is one of those great sort of dumpster dives where, you know, yeah, you know, some of the covers, I don't think Molly's Lips is that great. But they, they throw in Sliver there and Dive and Stain to start the album off. And then you realize that, like, yeah, Nirvana was a band that, that didn't just have its album tracks. They had a real depth. They had a real depth. And, and these are secondary songs, but secondary only in the sense that they haven't been polished to that sort of diamond hard sheen of perfection that you'd find on, you know, ner- you know Nevermind or In Utero. Yeah, this album is is like a result of what you what you have when you have sort of lightning in a bottle here. Like, this is a phase where you know Nirvana and both as you know the the avatar for a global phenomenon, and, and in addition to their own you know incredible songwriting, they can kind of do no wrong, you know. And you're right. Th- th- in a lot of ways, this record is disjointed. And you have the BBC mm-hmm. sessions, you have the the cutesy pop covers of the Vaseline's, like you know Molly's lips, um, and then you have these, you know, re- then you have like Dive, which is you know them like trying to impersonate the Melvins or something like that. And then you have the fun poppy stuff like like Silver. It's kind of all over the map. Oh, and you have Arrow Zeppelin in light of our our previous conversation, where that's a great song. <laughs> where, but but it's it's just funny in light of what we were talking about. I was talking about with the classic rock divide, right? Because that the title of that song is not an accident. There's like a weird galloping riff in that song that that there's no doubt that the reason why the song is titled that way is because it reminded them of, <laughs> of Aerosmith and Zeppelin riffs. There's just no question about it. set begins with their cover version of heartbreaker uh, and it's it's hilarious because like somebody in the crowd shouts out hey play heartbreaker and then uh, you know i think it's nova Selleck who says like i don't know how to play that song then <laughs> <laughs> Cobain just starts actually playing the riff because he knows how to play it and then they do another like version of like you know like like a jam that, that turns into moby dick so like yeah it might not have been cool to admit it but they were huge zep heads clearly yeah but but yeah, you, it, it's weird because there's nothing stylistically holding any of this together, and yet it's kind of a joy start to finish, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it's really interesting in that in that regard. But you know, again, that's that's like I said, it's that lightning in a bottle phenomenon. You know, like you mentioned, Pisces Iscariot. So it's a very similar vibe. I mean, I'm sorry, but like Drown is probably in my top ten. You know, Smashing Pumpkin songs. You know, right. it, it it when you know a band is firing on all cylinders like that. Um, it really allows them to branch out and, and you know just 
do things like this. You know, let's just release, you know, what we're working on because you're going to be interested because they're, they're definitely onto something. Maybe it's not never mind level good, but, you know, damn if it ain't, hmm. you know, worth listening to. There, there's a handful of, I think, really early songs dating back to like 88 uh, Hairspray Queen and Mexican Seafood. Th- Aero Zeppelin is one of those. Aero Zeppelin well, yeah. is pretty early. I, I like Aero Zeppelin. The, the rest, I'm not sure about. I, I think those are the weakest parts of this of this collection. But there are some. I mean, it might not be a totally necessary album, but there are necessary tracks, and some of them have been heard before. As Jeff mentioned, Sliver had been released a bit ago. That is. Again, not to echo what, what you said, but that's a ridiculously fun song. It might be the most kind of, I don't want to say joyous, but but certainly fun song in in, in their collection. Um, I hear it. I mean, there's no uh, there's no uh, coincidence. I hear an awful lot of the Pixies in in Sliver, of course. Um, that, that version of Been a Sun that's on here, which I think is also from BBC Sessions, mm-hmm. is really good. I mean, that really that really kicks. And uh, they cover they cover Devo here as well and you know so many comparisons also with smashing pumpkins and and you know we talked about billy corgan's love of the knack earlier and or i'm sorry uh, uh, kurt cobain's love of the knack earlier and billy Cor- corgan would would say you know cheap trick was was his band and cheap trick covers um uh you know new wave alice cooper with clones on uh on a later album and you've got Nirvana covering Devo of all bands here with Turnaround, and they I think they nail it. I think it's a they great nail it, but the baseline on but that, that, that for some reason that might be my single favorite Chris Novoselic baseline <laughs> ever. The way he the way he intros that song is just it, it, they're in command of it. They nail uh, a Devo cover, which perhaps you would not uh, predict if you were looking on from uh, from the outside. Uh, Dive, um, I, th- I think, is is uh, uh, very bleach sounding, right? Uh, sort of like Blue, which also kicks off that that particular album. But you know, low and heavy, but still throwing off hooks left and right. Uh, there are certainly things that should be heard here, uh, but again, there are a few pieces. Mostly the very early stuff that I think prevent it from being a truly necessary record. I mean, it, it, again, it's sort of like Pisces Iscariot is not a necessary record for the Smashing Pumpkins, but you wouldn't want to be out without a copy of Starla or um, you know or that landslide version. Mm-hmm. I, I think that if you, if you like Nirvana, you definitely need to hear Sliver. <laughs>
and stain and dive and you probably want to hear that aero zeppelin song too and aneurysm <laughs> my god you need to hear that song uh but it was just again a canny marking time option for the band because after the huge global success of nevermind and then um of course the the burgeoning problems that we've only sort of indirectly referenced here of kurt cobain's heroin habit which is something that I guess, you know, it, it, I didn't really want to dwell on this during the show that much, but it is kind of impossible to avoid because it, it, it obviously bears hugely upon the end of the band's career. You know, Kirk O'Bain didn't just suffer from depression. He suffered from a slowly acquired, but that's always the most insidious way of all, a slowly acquired and uh, eventually kind of overwhelming heroin addiction. And, uh, you know, so he, yeah. he had a, chronic painful stomach condition as well yeah i don't help the heroin thing or whatever because i think that made it feel better but but you know you know i don't again i don't know much want to dwell with either but i'll just you know mention here that i was at i saw nirvana on january 1st 1994 down in medford oregon um which was gosh like their third or fourth to last show ever um and it was depressing i mean he had no energy the band was just going through the motions i mean it was so different compared to you know, the earlier phase in their careers when you'd see them. Um, and it just, it really, really did take a toll. Yeah. I, and it's, it's sad, but it, it, I guess it has to be mentioned because you wonder like, why are there so such long delays between their albums? Well, some of it is sort of creative indecision, you know, a desire to not repeat oneself to figure out what the next way forward is supposed to be. But a lot of it also has to do with, you know, Kurt's demons and they were very real. And of course we all know how the story ends, uh, but, What's important for this, you know, for this section of the show is is how they decided to follow up. Uh, how do you follow up? Never mind. It's the number one hit album, as you said. It's Diamond. It went ten times platinum, which makes it Diamond. Um, and it's you know again sparked a musical revolution. And now you're the most important people in the world. You know, okay, you went to the MTV Music Awards. You got in a fight with Axl Rose backstage. You've had all these these great moments, but how are you actually going to do an encore to that? And so what they decided to do is they wanted to get Steve Albini, who I will insist is my least favorite musical person of the rock era. And it's not because I dislike his work. I think his production work is almost uniformly superb. I just think he's one of the biggest pricks in the entire music scene. I said this on Twitter last night. Is that I dare you to read any interview uh, given by Steve Albini from 1987 to maybe the year 2000 and not want to punch him in the kidneys because he's so smug. He's so arrogant. He's even arrogant about Nirvana. He's like, yeah, I listened to Nirvana, and you know, they just seemed like they were just purveyors of, you know, no more interesting purveyors of that typical generic Seattle sound than any other group that came out of that region. What an asshole! I'm sorry. My my favorite thing about Albini is he will go on at length whenever asked about how much he enjoyed recording Bush's razor blade suitcase and what great guys they were. Um, now, I don't know whether that's a comment on, you know, the drama involving so many of the other bands. I mean, I suspect that, you know, recording uh, in utero uh, with Steve Albini in the room and Nirvana with all their problems is not, not a terribly pleasant process. And I imagine that affected um, what 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 came with with that. Yeah, I would know, say but, I know. would say I would say that, Mark. But OK, listen, after the Pixies went from Surfer Rosa to record Doolittle with another producer, he called Doolittle the album Doolittle, for God's sake. He called it like sellout pop crap. All right, I, he 
he finally apologized for it like 20 years later. But my I, God, I will, what a jerk. I'm entirely with you. But I would also note that I do think that Steve Albini has finally like grown up a lot in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years and has a much more, <laughs> much more sane, you know, view of things uh, and, and how he goes about things. And, and, you know, and he has apologized for a lot of this stuff. Uh, it only took him to reach age 50 to apologize. <laughs> He's finally reached maturity. <laughs> right. But but I but so I will say one thing that is one thing about this, you know, Albini thing that you raise. I was, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of, you know, deep diving into Van Halen because I play guitar and I'm not it was Van Halen wasn't a thing I was interested in growing up and now I'm, you know, more interested into it. But one thing that's interesting that marked rock and roll from its earliest days, I think, on through well, kind of the Nirvana era was when this stuff kind of started to stop was rock and roll was very, very competitive. And to some extent, that was a good thing. There was a lot of slagging of other bands and other things like that. The whole point was to like, you know, if you were the opener, you wanted to make the headliner look bad and stuff like that to like prove your worth. And I think that kind of like animus to some extent um, and competitive spirit like pushed a lot of bands, you know, to do better. And in the studio, yeah, Steve Albini was a jerk, but he would, you know, he would run into the, you know, the the recording room and yell at bands to do better, you know, and get better performances out of them because. You know, even though he was a jerk, he was a jerk because he cared about this stuff, right? Right. Which was, you know, more than a lot of corporate rock producers at the time in the 80s who were, you know, just, you know, picking up checks. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, it was interesting um, when Nirvana came out and, and, the you know, the whole alternative thing, like, broke wide open. There was a lot of, like, angry, like, you know, comments from, like, the traditional classic rock guys. I mean, Steve Luthiker famously went out there and, like, trashed Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> Again, Luthiker has subsequently apologized for this a bunch of times. And I remember Billy Corgan at the time, like, snarking back that the best rock riff I'd ever written was Hold the Line. I'd shut my mouth. <laughs> but but, but um, that, that kind of, like, competitiveness was um was a, a very a very much a factor in rock and it was very much a factor in nirvana and the explosion of grunge and why it was so impactful um you know and but also i don't know i mean i think to some extent these stupid spats kind of make and you know provoke these arguments in rock and roll that are w what we do here it's, it's fun for us to like discuss the relative merits of stuff and uh i, I almost wish that you know artists these days would be you know a little more dramatic um sometimes um because it makes things more interesting, if nothing else. You know, I don't know if I, Axel Rose and Kurt Cobain need to come to blows, but it, it's it's definitely you know part of the thing we like about rock and roll. Yeah, and so Albini produces in utero with uh, the band in the middle of Nowheresville, Minnesota, which I do like. Apparently, they said it was like I think I think it was Grohl or maybe it was Novoselic who said that like it was just like being in a gulag in a Siberia because it's like you know the middle of winter, it's it's like snowfall everywhere. We're trapped. There's nothing we can do. And I think their instruments didn't even arrive on time, so they just have nothing to do except sit around for the first like four days or something like that. And uh, they record in utero with Albini out, you know, in, in the, the frozen northern wastes of uh, Minnesota. And what do we get? We get an album that <clears throat> this is one that I think I think serious like hardcore Nirvana fans all say this is their greatest achievement. This is their best album. I'm I'm. You know, I've still got a bit of the the hot taker within me, and I'll say I think this is the weakest of their three student Yale albums. I don't think it's bad by any means. There are a lot of great songs on it, but there are actual for the first time there are songs on this that I have no time for. 
Like I don't like milk it at all. I've never liked Penny Royalty. I think it's it, it, as far as like a commercial song that was supposed to be a single. I don't think it's very good. Radio friendly unit shifter is. I love the title. I love the title <laughs> so much. <laughs> Which because for those who aren't aware of like you know industry jargon, you know that's be like oh yeah this is one it's going to sell a lot of units. It's going to move a lot of units. So this is a radio friendly unit shifter, and and I guarantee you this is not what a five minute long hard rock song is. Tourette's. I don't. I think this. The back half of this album is really weak. I know it starts so strong with "Serve the Servants" and then "Scentless" and then "Heart Shaped Box" and it ends with "All Apologies." But I think there is a, there's a span in here in the middle that I think yeah, is maybe just them being a little bit too intentionally abrasive and forgetting about what made Nirvana Nirvana was the fact that there were always these great hooks hidden in the middle of their songs. But again, that's me hot taking over it to start the conversation. What do you guys uh, think? Well, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I agree with damn near everything you just said, Jeff. Um, yeah. Second I mean, time you said that. You said that once on the replacements episode <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, maybe it's not as much of a surprise as I, I think. I'm so used to your Twitter hot takes. Um, but yeah, um, I, yeah, I think you're, you pretty much diagnosed this record. I mean, I think Tourette's in particular might be like the weak, one of the weakest songs in their catalog, you know? Um, and it comes, you know, right at the back end of, you know, an already kind of, I don't, I'm, I kind of like Penny Royalty. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff in here that, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's mediocre at best. I mean, there's some absolutely great stuff. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, all apologies and heart shaped box are great, great songs. Um, but it's also true, as you point out that, you know, working with Albini, you know, was always a bit of a crapshoot. Um, you know, they were obviously having, you know, lots of problems as a band. I mean, I think all this stuff shows it's just not nearly as cohesive in a lot of ways. Um, and this record is kind of like the reverse of Nevermind, where they get done recording this and Albini and his famously raw recording techniques and stuff like that, to some extent that, that benefits the band. But, you know, for a large extent, it, it, it doesn't. And they the band themselves were supposedly unhappy with the final product, which is why they called in... Um, Scott Litt, who was, you know, a big producer for R.E.M. and a number of other, you know, more polished um, alternative bands to come in and, you know, basically fix, you know, a, a number of the singles like Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies and stuff. And, and, what, and, and what did Albini do? This is a classic Steve Albini move. He refused to send the master tapes to Scott Litt at first. He said, no, nobody touches my recordings. They are what they are. He had to be like, I, I think, like, you know, either Nova Selleck or girl had to call him and listen to this like apparently it was like a quote intense conversation which I imagine was something more like listen you son of a bitch give the tapes to them this is our album for God's sake but yeah, yeah that, that, that's 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 Steve Albini of the 90s yeah and, and Scott Litt is a great producer and a great craftsman um, you know he's worked on some just absolutely fantastic records um, 
And, uh, you know, I think, I think his work was appreciated here, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It was kind of, it's kind of amazing to me. And again, when I talk about how that moment where it felt like the good guys in the music industry were winning there briefly, this is kind of in that window where people thought it was a good idea to have Steve Albini producing, you know, major label records, um, which, you know, I'm not, I mean, I actually love um, um, Surfer Rosa. I mean, I love the production. I love everything about that record, but it, it, it's, it's kind of a happy accident in that regard. And, and to trust uh, Albini to record an album, you know, of a band that's this poppy, you know, with his particular issues at the time, I don't know what everybody involved was thinking, to be honest. So I like, I like the album, I guess, better than both of you. And I really don't mind um, the production on it. I, I like a lot of things that uh, he's done through his, his, uh, his career. And I, I don't think it's... I don't think it's a weak point here. I, I don't think it necessarily... I don't mind the production, Scott. I just don't know if the songs are up to par. Yeah, and, and I will agree, the back half... You know, <laughs> this is a intentionally rougher-sounding record, right? At, uh, at some point after, never mind Cobain, and I'm not sure about the others, but Cobain for sure was crap on it from time to time and saying that's, that's not exactly how it should sound. They wanted to go a different direction with the production. They wanted to go a different direction with the sound uh, in utero. But uh, there's no there's no reward for making it through, right? Your reward for making it through most of in utero is 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 uh, Tourette's and, and radio-friendly unit shifter, essentially. And those are some of the most abrasive, noisy, yowling songs you, you could imagine. Um, those things crop up earlier. Something like uh, Sent uh, Sentless Apprentice, where uh, Cobain is just screaming, "Go away!" And you know he's way into the red. He's way overmodulated in the in the in, in the mix. Um, that is something that works. That works, right? The early the early on the album that works, and it's a it's a tactic. mentioned serve the servants which i think is a really great song with a with a great chorus and i guess some of the more personal lyrics if, if we could assign them right i tried to have a father but instead i had a dad uh, just want you to know that i don't hate you anymore there's nothing i could say that i haven't thought before there's a little bit of stuff there a little bit of cobain there more than we usually get on some of these lyrics um i like dumb I think that's uh, no dumb is great. Dumb is one of the best songs on the album. Dumb is again yeah. almost. Uh, it reminds me of on a plane. It, it's their their Beatle pop song for this record. Yeah, with probably his you know the best bridge he ever wrote. You know, the skin All the right. sun fall away. Uh, that that part. It's a great bridge. Skin the sun.
is um, a great song. And, you know, the, the, I think the lead single, right, Heart Shaped Box, I think is one of the most accomplished writing efforts of Cobain's career. That's a really well-written song. I like and a lyric and a lyric too. That's actually got a yeah. very good. Yes, lyric. I mean yeah. this this idea of sort of a weary, uh, helpless person in a relationship, but then you know breaking through on the course. <laughs> I love this even back then. You know the hey wait I've got a new complaint. Uh, that, that I think that's one of his most accomplished writing efforts. <laughs> giant fan of Rape Me, but the way that he sort of turns inside out those opening chords of Smells Like Teen Spirit in service of another song. I guess live occasionally they would sort of tease the audience by playing the chords and then getting right into Rape Me instead of Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I guess one specific song I would uh, I would say I like apparently a lot more than Jeff is Milk It. I, I do like Milk It. I think it's, uh, mm. uh, I think it's one of the best examples here of sort of the shift that they wanted from the production. I think Melkit would fit fine on Nevermind, but it would have a very different production set on it. And this is this the, the more updated, or at least updated for their requests uh, on In Utero. Um, and then I guess we gotta, I mean, we've got to talk about All Apologies, which is the last recorded song on an album proper until the, the greatest hits effort uh, down the line. And it took on a life of its own after the Unplugged uh, edition, which we'll talk about in a bit. That's a really great song, too. I guess that is... The... That's, a, that's a song to me that, that, that sort of emphasizes what... Uh, you know, the guy who probably gets the least attention in Nirvana is Chris Novoselic, because obviously Kurt Cobain is Kurt Cobain, and then Dave Grohl went on to do the Foo Fighters, which are you know, still huge to this day. Um, the bass line on All Apologies, that opening, the way it duets with the guitar... That is one of the most sort of menacingly, but also beautifully effective moments of Nirvana's entire career.
again, that goes into exactly what I've been saying about how like the musicianship there, um, especially from the sidemen, gets you know short shrift, and it, it really shouldn't. Um, I think what's interesting about this record is you have to kind of like step back and look at it in sort of the larger context, which is to say that like I totally agree with Jeff about you know it has you know distinct failings. Um, however, what's it, it's ultimately an incredibly frustrating record because you know it doesn't take much imagination to see this in a larger context, which is to say that after the massive success of Nevermind, which the band is like clearly like reeling from and trying to deal with and incorporate into this sort of like artistic vision they have for themselves, to the point where they're like toying with, some, you know, turning you know, um, it smells like Teen Spirit inside out musically and otherwise with the song Rape Me. Like they're, they're messing with listeners' expectations and, and going with Steve Albini and they're, they're proving that they're independent and they still have these like punk rock abrasive roots and they're, they're, they're gonna, you know, stay true to those roots. They clearly felt like they had something to prove with this record, that they weren't going to be like pop sellouts or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and so you can imagine having gotten through this record, if Cobain hadn't killed himself, that the next record would have been one coming from a place of confidence. Like, okay, we've proven to people we're going to do things on our own terms. So we're really for real now going to do things without expectations. And it just kills me because you feel like the follow-up record watching this sort of trajectory, which, you know, mirrors in some respects, other bands trajectories where, you know, they're trying to prove their artistic independence. They would have been in a place like a healthy place artistically after this record where they wouldn't have had the expectations, you know, because they had thrown them off a bit with the last record. They could just go out and do what they wanted, but you know, they never, never got there. Right. <laughs> so that's why it makes the, it really magnifies the failings of this record for me and, and makes it frustrating to have to, you know, grapple with them. I, I, I think you know, rate me, of course, this, just saying the song title. I mean, I, you're, you're obviously grasping the nettle. You're taking the challenge that the band wanted you to take. Uh, this is the song that famously uh, saw George W. Bush shatter his daughter Jenna's copy of In Utero. Uh, this is a, a true story that you know, you know, W. Uh, you know, found this in in his daughter's CD collection and saw the title track, and he's like, "You're not going to listen to this crap," and he snapped the CD in half. <laughs> Right, which is hilarious. Uh, although the song is is obvious, it's not about that. It's obviously brutally, you know, you know, kind of coruscatingly an indictment of you know the male gaze and, and the idea of you know you know you know obviously rape and sexual assault. But yeah, you know that that that's blunt and, and putting it like that is guaranteed to put people off. But then there are smaller songs in this album that don't ever get talked about that I think are great. I really love Francis Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle. I don't know why Francis Farmer is going to have a revenge on Seattle as opposed to Hollywood, but. I love that song. It's it's another one of those sort of quiet, almost bleach-like songs that has a bunch of little hooks that are just hidden away in it, and you don't realize it until you've gotten through the song, and you're like, oh, man, that, that's still lingering in my head. It's so relaxing, hear that rising,
This guy already mentioned dumb. I like very ape. You know, it's not a you know, great song, but it's, it's, it's amusing. Uh, but yeah, we all agree about, you know, the, the back half of this album. That, you know, from there until all apologies, there is a certain discernible quality drop off here. Um, I don't think that that meant that the band was done in any way necessarily, despite, of course, Cobain's, you know, addiction problems and I think obviously psychological issues and, uh, you know, all the other sort of pressures that were, you know, you know, gnawing at the band. And I think the clearest evidence of that is it, I, it's not the last album they released during their lifetime, sadly, because it came out posthumously. But uh, this is sort of what most people consider to be like the end of Nirvana, their official terminus, which is a live album. It's MTV Unplugged. It's so, um, yeah. So I just want to make a point of order here about yeah. the fact that Cobain did, in a in in a manner of speaking, you know, since you mentioned Francis Farmer, I've always understood that to be kind of an oblique reference to Courtney Love, who kind of like identified with her, right? Um, but you know. The whole holes lived through this record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, demos have since surfaced that a lot of those songs were were written by Kurt, um, and this was a sense of this was a source of tension within the band hmm. itself. And, You're giving away your songs to Courtney, yeah, yeah, um, and you know you and, and and you know that record, despite Courtney Love's baggage, is you know it's got some decent like pop songs on there, and you can imagine had them been recorded by Nirvana. They would have been, you know, big things. And it, it does make me think about what I was saying about the trajectory of the band and how this record turned out. You know, what if they had recorded like, you know, four of those songs from Live Through This on Put Them On in Utero? We'd be having a very different discussion about this, you know. Um, well, even if, they, just, even if they had put on some of the songs that never got released, like uh, like uh, Sappy or a verse, right. chorus, verse, whatever they call it, that's a fantastic song. They threw it away on that No Alternative album, which is, by the way, one of the greatest compilations ever released during the 90s. you got classic pavement songs in there as well, like Unseen Power, The Picket Fence. Everybody, go hear No Alternative. It's like one of those things that was, in its own secret way, a legend. But yeah, like, you know, Cobain was maybe making artistic decisions that were more about himself and his family life. And this, by the way, is why you maybe don't realize this people who weren't there at the time, there was a super strong you know, cult of hatred for Courtney Love. People would refer to her as like a vampire, as Nosferatu. There was a, even this like long-running conspiracy theory, which is slanderous, complete BS. They're like, oh, Courtney Love killed Kurt Cobain. People were actually like averring that Courtney Love secretly murdered Kurt Cobain. Why? I mean, who knows why? The, pe- the reason that people came up with these conspiracy theories is that there was hatred for her. Why was there hatred for her? Well, I think a lot of it was basically misogynistic, that she was, you know, wasn't going to take any crap from anybody. And she acted out and she misbehaved and she was assertive and aggressive. And a lot of people couldn't process that in 1993. But there was also a sense, I think, uh, particularly it, this isn't just you know a cultural thing within the group. There, geez, the, the 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 they they were suing each other all the way up through the nineties and the two thousands. Right. Uh, the sense that I, she was like sort of like taking over. She was Yoko Onoing it. You know, I, I so I'm from Oregon, <laughs> and Love was a bit of a local legend. I knew people that knew Courtney Love, um, and. Look, I don't want to discount the misogyny thing being a factor, um, but I think that she was kind of 
psychotic. <laughs> so the rumors are true, in other words, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, uh, you know, there was a um, there was a book in the '90s. It's kind of one of these quintessential Gen X artifacts called Bong Water, and they made a movie out of it with Luke Wilson in the '90s, um, where there's a character involving you know a girl who like burns down someone's house. That is like it's all it's clearly based on Courtney Love. Like everyone that knew her was like, oh my gosh, that girl was you know nuts. Um, so yeah. That, that that's definitely uh, definitely an issue with her. I remember Tori Amos hated her famously because she wrote a song about her called "Celebrity Widow," which is just the most, most vicious title you can imagine to describe someone. It's like I'm I'm famous for being the widow of a person far more talented than me, um, which again you know kind of goes into the whole Yoko Ono thing. Um, but yeah, well, so we will never necessarily know the truth or the lie about the kind of person that Courtney Love was. But what we do know is that Nirvana's final release of their, their sort of career era is uh, MTV Unplugged. gig that the band ever played in fact you know you know uh, mark actually saw them after this show this would have been in like late 93 november i believe october mm-hmm. november 93 um yeah. and of course it's the mtv unplugged thing like it needs to be, be explained this is where you don't use your electric instruments and all the big amps and loud guitars you strip it down you strip it back and by 1993 the format had kind of become a little bit stale uh, but Nirvana agreed to do it nonetheless. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure. You know, it seems a bit corporate for them. But the fact of the matter is, is that the entire world is grateful that they did because, gosh, this actually is conceivably one of the two albums that I will name at the end of the show. And it's a live album. Uh, it's a magnificent concert recording. It's almost painfully immediate and personal and Cobain's never been in better voice, which is weird given how, like, you know, how sick he must have been at this time and how difficult things might have been for him. Uh, the performances are perfect. The song choices are perfect. The guest artists who come up to play with them are perfect. It's a great live album. It's probably one of the most important live albums of the rock era, in my opinion. I had not considered that until prepping for the episode, but realized very quickly that this is probably one of the most famous live albums ever released. It's, uh, I think, eight times platinum, so, I mean, millions of copies sold. The demand was off the charts after 
Cobain's death, and it earns all of it. Um, this, yeah, I mean, you know, famously, people who have followed the show, uh, what I think of most live albums, uh, essentially inconsequential. And that's not the case with Unplugged at all. Um, this is almost certainly one of my top five live albums ever made. It will end up in the two albums that I name at the end of the show. Uh, it, it's an amazing piece of art. I mean, really, it's an amazing piece of art. When you consider the buildup, Cobain was very nervous about this, very nervous about playing in an acoustic-type setting, although I think he ran his acoustic through a amplifier anyway. Um, the network didn't like the set list they had picked out. They didn't want three Meat Puppet songs. They didn't want the Meat Puppets at all. They wanted some more famous friends, an Eddie Vedder, uh, someone else to come on stage and play. And up until the day of the show, there was some real question about whether Cobain was going to go through with it and actually play the show. And even after the show, there were more. There was more conflict because they wanted him to do an encore. And he said, I don't think I can do better than that. And so he won. There was no encore. But uh, this is a, this is a this is an album I think you take you know holistically. It, it is a start to finish experience that works on every level. As Jeff said, performances are on key. The vocals are outstanding. The arrangements are great. The addition of that cello to some of these songs just just makes it such an amazing uh, experience. It's all in a single take. It's immediate. It's intimate. I think part of that probably is because of how they had to record for TV, right? And so I think there's a little bit more immediacy with the way the, uh, that they were recorded, you know, the microphones and placements and all that. I think there was that's part of the reason it's so immediate. And the nature of these songs and the way they were performed, the, the tension inherent in a lot of these compositions never blows up. Or maybe at the very end, where, do you, where did you sleep last night? That final verse, the haunting final verse, that vocal performance is amazing. But there's all this tension that lies just below the surface on a lot of these songs. Um, Come As You Are is not one of my favorite Nirvana songs. I don't really like the performance on Nevermind. I think it's transformed on this unplugged version. Uh, the guitar parts are beautiful. The solo is fantastic. I enjoy listening to this version of a song that I don't really like hearing all that much on uh, Nevermind. Great covers, The Man Who Sold the World, the Bowie cover, uh, the Lead Belly cover, Where Did You Sleep Last Night, the final song on this record, which just should leave you breathless. I mean, it takes your breath away. And, and then All Apologies, the song just before it. Uh, when they performed this, that song was not extremely well known. It had not been released as a single off of uh, In Utero before they played it on Unplugged, and they just nail it. Uh, the, the the cover, the Meat Puppet covers are great. I, I, I love Plateau of, of those three. 
uh, even a song like Polly, which they must have loved because it's it's there's like 18 different versions of Polly on on various compilations and albums through their career. <laughs> Here, I, I just it's, it's extra sinister with that with the bass line of Novoselic and how he plays that and the voice cracks of, of Cobain throughout. Mary. choice of material is fascinating uh, and they do it in a way that each cut is each each song is singular uh, I think part of doing an unplugged thing like this is you can get sort of in, in the same sort of sonic realm everything's acoustic everything's unplugged but with each song in this record they really stand up individually they're individual pieces that together make up this amazing piece of work I, 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 eight million people at least have the record, but I can't recommend it strongly enough. Again, coming from someone who's not always a fan of live albums, this takes that present material, it really transforms it, and it gives you a different experience and lets you know how good these guys were, um, both uh, vocally and, and musically. It's a tremendous accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that, that's right. I mean, about it being one of the best, you know, or live records in rock history. And what's interesting about it is, is for all, in a weird way, it is a very fitting coda to Nirvana's, you know, brief career in the sense that for a band that was so much of a breakthrough band, for a band that so much revolutionized, you know, the pop music landscape um, and, you know, pushed rock forward after being pretty stagnant, for a long time it, the choice of covers here is one the fact that there are so many i mean there are one two there are what six covers out of 14 songs here um are really interesting you know you have the vaselines who are you know sort of an obscure scottish you know pop punk band you have david bowie with a man who sold the world and then you have lead belly for crying out loud you know this you know fantastic old bluesman and then you have you know the three meat puppet songs where you know like Jeff already mentioned, you know, the Meat Puppets are one of these bands that, you know, don't get the credit they deserve. And, you know, Nirvana, in a lot of ways, even though they broke through for specific reasons, you know, very much standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, if it weren't for the Pixies and bands like the Meat Puppets and stuff, they never would have, you know, been able to, you know, you know, paving the way. They never would have been able to break through. Seriously, uh, I think and- that Plateau uh, might be my single favorite song on the album. Mm-hmm. And it's just the play out, the instrumental play out on the end of Plateau with all those acoustics well, going on. It's just beautiful. One of the very rare moments of genuine beauty on a Nirvana performance because it's not really what they were ever going for. But what an inspired choice to just play three consecutive Meat Puppet songs from their one album, that second album, which is a masterpiece, by the way. Yeah. I love it. I just am so impressed by that choice.
But it's very interesting to me, from punk rockers to David Bowie to Lead Belly, how this record like actually contextualizes Nirvana in the rock and roll firmament. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I, I and it, it's it, I don't I don't know if that was you know in a remotely conscious decision. It feels effortless. It feels like an extension of who they are and what they liked artistically. But at the same time, you know, for a band that like literally like tore the music industry apart, this you know statement of like you know we're here uh, as part of this larger you know cultural thing that we all value so much, um, you know, is is it, it's really powerful to see them come full circle like that. I mean, uh, it's funny. I don't really have much more to add than what you guys have. I think this is a, this is a, a magical concert. And what needs to be emphasized is that this wasn't done over like multiple days and multiple right. takes. One take. They, they, you know, they didn't go back to play a song twice after having flubbed it the first time. This is the actual show from start to finish. No overdubs, no changes. And, you know... It, Again, Mark told us a story about watching Nirvana play a show after this where it was just depressing. Nobody was on. They were going through the motions. <clears throat> Nirvana's played some bad shows. I have that DVD on the With the Lights Out box set, which is actually fun. But, you know, there's definitely some, like, you know, like, hacked off stuff there where they're not really, like, in, all in time or all playing together. Um, this is almost magically perfect. There are no misplaced notes, even the errors. You hear a couple, you know, like, you know, somebody's harmony isn't quite right or somebody comes in a little too early there. It all is just perfect. It's weirdly perfect. It's something that I, I even knew back then. I knew back 1994 or 5 when it came out that this was a great record. But again, I had set it aside. So coming back to it recently, I was entranced by it. Uh, and it is such a it, it it does have that elegiac feel because it obviously you know Kurt Cobain had committed suicide already we didn't even mention it but it's almost like superfluous to mention that this yes Kurt Cobain had a drug overdose checked into rehab then left rehab after a week then was found dead in his apartment from a shotgun blast to the face that's terrible but it's a story that everyone knows already 
because it's kind of one of those defining moments of the childhood of anybody who's from our age group. I, I guess I don't understand what like you know millennials or Zoomers must think. If you're born in 2000, you can't even remember 9/11, much less have any concept of like how the world was rocked when Kurt Cobain was 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 found dead in his apartment in Seattle. That was a huge thing for people my age. I talked about it at the beginning of the show, how I almost kind of got weirdly resentful. It was like, why is everyone blowing this out of proportion? I understand now, I think, in my old age, why people blew that up so much, why it, it did feel so sort of like the end of an era. Um, and, of course, other bands reacted in that same way. I mean, Pearl Jam's entire career trajectory was basically functionally altered by Kurt Cobain's suicide. You know, everything from uh, Vitology onwards seemed to very clearly be a reaction to, you know, what had happened to Nirvana and their determination to just go a different direction and sort of make it and, as a working band and kind of come up with a modus vivendi, which they successfully did. Um, but yeah, this is the end. I mean, and and of course, the only things after this are archival releases. Some of them are fantastic. I don't know if you guys have any uh, strong thoughts on that live album that was released several years later uh, from on the Muddy, Muddy Banks, Banks of the Wish, Wish, the Wish Cow, which is, of course, the river in Aberdeen, Washington. I think it's fantastic, but it is very much the opposite of Unplugged, which is just such a a tight and calibrated and calm performance. Uh, Wishka is them at their their electrified, insane, like you know, let it all hang out. Best. Uh, I think it's really great. It's it's not just one concert. It takes from every era of their career, including the Chad Channing career, it's from 1989 all the way to 1994. Uh, it's a pretty fun compilation of live hits. Yeah, um, I, I I would agree with that. You know, completely. Um... And, uh, you know, coming out in 1996, I mean, it was a really big deal at the time. And, and because of the feuding between Love and the rest of the band or whatever, I mean, it was God knows how long. It was years and years before any more new Nirvana material came out. I mean, so if for nothing else, I mean, uh, aside from the fact that they hadn't put out a proper, you know, live electric album, at least, um, it was, you know, very much, you know, um, you know, it's not like an earth-shattering thing, but it was definitely like welcome, and you know, and I'm glad we had it out there. And it was all the only new Nirvana people had for years. The tracks are essentially chronological through this, but again, unlike Unplugged, clearly, th this is these are performances you know chosen, selected from various years, uh, and that means that the quality of the source material is somewhat varied. It doesn't, it's not meant to sound like a piece, like one piece, I suppose. But some right. tracks are recorded a little bit better than others. That's apparent as you go through. Uh, it is, it's visceral, it's loud. Uh, you know, a song like Lithium really does jump from the speakers in, in this setting. Uh, I think the, the version of School that's on here is quite good. Um, you know, I guess getting back to Mark's comment from seeing them at the beginning of 94, there are some performances here from the 93 tour that are um, less than less than stellar. Uh, I think. Yeah, they're rougher, man. They really are. You can you can hear the age, the age in Cobain's <laughs> voice. But I mean, the heart shaped box here is, you know, adequate. Uh, the sliver version that's on here has a. It's like he's delivering the, his lines with a clenched jaw, whether he doesn't want to be singing that song anymore or it's just, you know, some sort of performer audience interaction. It's, it's a little odd uh, sounding. Yeah, 
double back so it's it's like chronological for three quarters and then at the very end there are four or five tracks that date back to very early in the career so um, I, i'm not certain why it's structured that way but it is um and again I, i've heard although i have not heard there have been a couple of other live releases in the years since and there's one in particular that of course i'm not going to be able to pull but i had read a few things saying that more than even the muddy banks album is sort of them at their their loud live best so it's a nice compilation it gives you a sense of what they were doing in person and uh, and on stage through the course of their career uh, but I, I don't necessarily love it i mean one of the things that it's worth saying about nirvana is that if you like the band and you like live performances it is incredibly easy to find a ton of soundboard performances of nirvana uh they had they're you know this is we're getting into the late 80s early 90s and from that point on you know almost any band of repute had uh you know the ability to 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 get good soundboard tapes of themselves performing so you can find a lot of other stuff they actually even released the live at reading uh much later this is is like last uh, I was about to say last year, but it was last decade, which is sad because it makes me realize that the entire 2010s have just zoomed by me. <laughs> I think it came out in 2009 or something like that. This is Reading Festival 92 at the height of their fame. Um, uh, a great performance and, and a much more motivated one, I think, by Kurt. Uh, but yeah, you could find a lot of live stuff from Nirvana. I think the last thing to mention, we don't have to dwell too much on this, but I will say, and this is one that I, I, I got back in the day because, you know, me, I was an inveterate boxed set collector. Even if I didn't much care for a band, I had this sense that, like, I'm going to get this just to make sure. You know, just in case one day I decide I really like this band, I'm going to be glad I had this box set and I can page through these liner notes. So they came out with, I think, this must have been the end of my college year, something like that, 2002, three, something like that. They came out with, with the lights out. It's a three CD box set of outtakes, B-sides, rarities, and stuff like that. And they throw in a DVD there, which is pretty good, too. Um a lot of people kind of treat this as a disappointment. Well, it's not as impressive as it should be. You know, it's a lot of home demos and boombox recordings and like garage rehearsals and then a few B-sides and things like that. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it. I don't expect everyone to be. You have to have a certain sort of obsessive quality to you to enjoy stuff like this, which is, you know, they're, they're, they're naked baby photos, so to speak. You know, you, you hear that, as I said earlier in the show, you hear them, the first song on the set is them playing Heartbreaker at their first ever concert. And, you know, Chris says, like, I don't know how to play this song. And it's really funny because then you hear Kurt just screaming the lyrics out. They play the whole verse through for the first time and then he screams the lyrics out the, the second time. And, then, you know, he's not Robert Plant, um, but it, it, it has a charm to it. Uh, all of these CDs have a charm to them. It basically covers their, you know, first year is the Bleach era, second is the Nevermind era, third is the In Utero era. There's a lot of great music to be found here. Um, but, you know, 
not I can't in good conscience recommend it to anybody but you know a person who actually has decided yeah I'm a real serious Nirvana fan I've only been through it here and there picking tracks and I that's the main thing is some of this stuff is really lo-fi um, right some of the stuff is really poor recordings I think the original the original demo of Smells Like Teen Spirit is just, it's, it's extremely poor quality recording. Yeah, I mean, it was basically them like putting the boombox on and recording it as they're playing in the garage. Right. And in some ways, I felt a little uncomfortable listening to some of that stuff. I, Kurt's not around to say that these are the songs he would have liked to have seen the light of day or, or to approve any of this. And, um, you know, Nova Selleck did do most of the compilation here, I believe, or um, um, Grohl did too. This is one I think they both worked on together. This is, there was a big legal fight because Courtney Love didn't want to let them release this box set because of You Know You're Right. She wanted that for a single disc greatest hits compilation. She ended up getting her way. That song is on the Nirvana titled greatest hits album that was released in and 02. It's- only adequate it's an okay song it's good right it's not like the world beating it, it let's put it this way it does not like blow away the reputation of come as you are <laughs> yeah. or smells like teen spirit it, it's not uh it's not mary jane's last dance no it, <laughs> yes it, yes that's a great it's a great comparison like the greatest hits bonus track that was better than almost everything on the actual greatest hits and the greatest hits alone was pretty great so yeah yeah I, I mean, I, no, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't know if I'd go that far with Mary Jane's Last Dance, but I mean, it's it's one of the Tom Petty's best songs. And for you know, and I, I never understood that. Like, it was this music era, music in, in the area of physical media. Like, there was a lot of insistence by record companies and other people that you throw on a bonus track on a greatest hits collection because that would entice people to buy the record when they might have had the songs and other records they already owned. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a classic example, you're right, of, of that, you know, not nece- being a necessary addition at all, um, you know, and, and Mary Jane's Last Dance being the complete and total exception. So you were saying, Scott, or have we come to the end of this show? I think we're about wrapped up here on the uh, career of Nirvana. So that means we've come to the part of the show in which your esteemed hosts give you the two albums and the five songs that you should hear. From our band, Nirvana, Mark Hemingway, writer at Real Clear Investigations and Real Clear Politics, our guest on today's program. Mark, the floor is yours for your two albums that people must own in the five songs from the career they should hear. Okay, um, well, um, let's see. I mean, I think obviously never mind. <laughs> it's just really hard to get around that. And I would probably say, you know, MTV Unplugged in New York. Um, those are the two albums that, you know, I think, define nirvana um you know bleach is definitely in the mix there um but but i think those are the two albums and as for the five songs i mean i i i don't want to be like one of these crazy musical contrarians you know and and have to come up with something (laughs) interesting to say at all times so let's just get smells like teen spirit out of the way i mean it's just one of the greatest things ever recorded in terms of like just the oral majesty of the sound coming out of your speakers, you know, never mind it's, you know, pop culture significance. Um, so yeah, obviously that's there. Um, um, I would also say, um, um, I would also say territorial pissings. (laughs) I, I just think that like that really captures the band's, you know, energy, and speaks to you know the, the more angry side of what they, they did in sort of the best possible way. Um, um, 
on, I mean, what I would also say, you know, silver, I think that speaks, sorry, sliver, which I think that speaks to their, you know, pop leanings in probably the best possible way, you know, for people that would maybe be turned off by Nirvana's, you know, angry punk, you know, thing that is sort of a, you know, a good sort of, you know, gateway drug. Um, and I would also say um, about a girl on bleach. Uh, what am I up to four here? Five. Oh yeah. yeah that's uh, who cares? Go for one more. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> and, uh, it doesn't have to be science. And uh, I would probably say, um, heart-shaped box off of in utero i think that's the best of their sort of sinister vibe songs that i think defined a lot of what they did so my two albums indeed will mirror marks never mind for the obvious reasons and i i just spent uh, time saying how much i loved unplugged one of the best live albums i think ever recorded so those are the two albums i choose and there are going to be some repeats here, too. Uh, I, I think Sliver, for sure, from the from sort of the early period of the band's career, that's one of the most joyously fun songs and extremely catchy uh, that you should hear. From uh, Nevermind, uh, Drain You, I, I think could be the best song on Nevermind. And I am somewhat assuming you've heard <laughs> more than enough times, or at least enough times, the main singles from that record. Um, Heart Shaped Box from In Utero, and I'll put a second In Utero song on there too, Dumb. And then from the Unplugged album, we just go right to the end, and that cover version of Where Did You Sleep Last Night is something that must be heard. Jeff, over to you. I hate it when you steal all my thoughts, Scott. I hate it so much. I think we're going to have to agree. I think it's amazing because you can make an argument for Bleach. You can make an argument for In Utero. Uh, the Nirvana superfans listening to this show almost certainly will. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's Nevermind and it's it's uh, MTV Unplugged. Those are the two. Uh, it, I can't really you know, add to what you guys have said about Unplugged. We've talked about it enough. You really are not going to find a more compelling live performance than that one. Uh, as for my five songs, I'm going to start with uh, from Bleach. It's Blue. I think it's the first song on the album. kind of captures them at their early wonky, art-rocky, sub-poppy best. Sliver is another one that made my list. Uh, so, Scott, you stole that one from me, and I blame you personally. Uh Again, Mark said it best. If you make a list like this and you don't include smells like Teen Spirit, you're just being a jerk. So, Scott, you're actually being a jerk. Yeah, I, mean, I, I have to point that out. <laughs> um, uh, four, I'll say, is On a Plane, which is, I think, actually my favorite song on Nevermind. It's just such great, you know, as I said, you know, dark John Lennon, heroin-addicted, late-night pop music. I don't know. It, it has that vibe to it, and it still works to this day. And fifth is, if I had to choose one from In Utero, it would be another one that Scott chose, which is Dumb, which, again, has that Beatlesque sound. A lot of good songs on In Utero, a lot of disappointing songs on In Utero, but I think Dumb definitely is is one of its highlights. And, you know, host prerogative. I think Mark might have thrown a sixth in, so why don't I as well? Again, Scott, you got there first, but it has to be reemphasized. The last song on MTV Unplugged, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? That lead belly cover, the way Kurt Cobain just takes it up an octave at the end and just howls his heart and his soul out on that song is it's it's hair it's spine tingling, it's hair raising, it's something that you'll never forget once you've heard it and you know, hopefully 
you'll be hearing it on this show. And there we are, the Political Beats look at the career of Nirvana. We thank our guest, Mark Hemingway, writer at Real Clear Investigations and Real Clear Politics. You can follow his work there. Find him on Twitter, at Heminator. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, we knocked another big one off of the uh, sort of, you know, the remaining big acts that we haven't uh, covered yet and fulfilled a request from our Patreon supporters who voted for Nirvana for the next episode. So really you know, making everyone happy. We live to serve you folks. And yet, I, I must confess, alas, still no echo in the Bunnymen. <laughs> we need guests for a bunch of things we really want to do. So we continue mining our friendships and Twitter feeds to find people to work with us. Uh, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. I'm on Twitter at Scott Bertram. You can also find us at Patreon. We have more exclusive content coming up very soon for our exclusive content supporters. Find out more at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Help the show stay ad-free. Support our efforts right there. Entry-level for voting on future episodes and just lending support. Mid-level for early access to new shows. Higher audio quality. Upper-level, our bestest friends. You get all of that stuff, plus... Exclusive content once a month, remastered episodes in the future, Spotify playlists, and more. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. We take a moment here to say thank you to some of our supporters over at Patreon, including Mike Morrison, John Presnall, Sean Hackbarth, a former guest, Chuck Turner, Alex Spurrier, Craig Cuthbert, Norman Fleischer, David Badig, Paul Ritchie, Kyle Van Dursen, Richard Kikuchi, and Jeff Peake. Thank you and everyone else for supporting us over at Patreon. Subscribe to our feed too. New episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. Go to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share them with friends, and leave reviews. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.